If you would please open up your Bibles to the book of Galatians. So Galatians, we've been for a little while studying Genesis and uh, right now we're hopping around in the New Testament looking for places that use Genesis essentially theologically as their basis just so we can say, okay, how is the New Testament using this book that we've been studying? Galatians, um, I mean, uh, most of the theological argument of Galatians is based on Genesis. And so today, my, my hope is that we will get to talk about the first theological argument based on the life of Abraham. Uh, but let's, let's look real quick at Galatians, just in general how it's laid out. So if you open up to Galatians 1, what we've got there is we've got, uh, of course, you've got a, a salutation. But very soon after the salutation, uh, Paul really, uh, you could say, goes on the attack. Um, there are happy letters of Paul, and there are not happy letters of Paul. And this is one of the not happy letters of Paul, uh, because they are flirting with uh, heresy. They are flirting with apostasy. And so Paul, uh, this is very serious to Paul. And so this is not a, a joyful letter at all, certainly not for quite a bit of the book. You know, he says in verse 6, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. And so that's, that's the note he starts off this thing with. You've got there, uh, for the rest of that chapter, you've got Paul talking about his calling by God. You've got chapter 2, 1 through 10, Paul talking about how he was accepted by the apostles. He's, uh, we'll come back to it real quick. Paul opposes Peter in verse 11. We'll spend a good bit of time on this in the next part, which is in uh, verse 15. He really starts to jump into the theological meat of the letter. And I think the, the best way to see this is uh, verses 15 through 21 is just general. Here's the topics I'm going to cover. All right. He basically states his theology. He doesn't try to prove anything at this point. He's just like, here's the, here's, here's the right way to look at things. Starting in, ver in chapter 3, though, he does start his argument. He's going to start, at this point, um, essentially anchoring their faith in, A, look at your experience. When did you receive the Spirit? And B, let's talk about Genesis and talk about Abraham and faith. You've got then in chapter 4, sons and heirs is, for example, uh, the uh, title I've got in my ESV. And in verse 21, you have this extended discussion of Hagar and Sarah, once again, from the book of Genesis. In chapter 5, we have a transition. And then from 5 and 6, he is more focused on uh, essentially the spiritual life. Now that he's essentially established, all right, from his argument, uh, his theology of justification by faith, and then... After that, you know, the Spirit's work in the believers, uh, that's what he's going to focus on in chapter 5 and 6. But even chapter 5 and 6, some aspects of that will show up in our little summary uh, from Galatians 2, verses 15 through 21. So he gives you a, a good highlight of some of the major themes he's going to go through with the whole letter right there in that little section. All right, so that's the book of Galatians as a whole. So now back to the beginning. For those of you who are uh, not overly familiar with Galatians, what we're going to do is we are just going to we're going to read through it, and the first part really will provide all we need. I think is minor commentary. There are a few tough spots in the in the book that are hard to understand, uh, but the first part is actually fairly clear. I think so. Let's let's read it if we will. Galatians chapter one verse one. Paul, an apostle. Not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. 
you've got there in, in verse 1 that not from men, this, I've got, it's in like um, long dashes separated in the ESV. It's like, a, it's like a parenthetical note. Not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ. All right, He's already here at the very beginning saying, hey, everything I'm talking about all right, is going to come directly from my calling by Jesus. Verse 6, at this point he launches into what the problem is, right? The Galatians are receiving a letter. They may, they may not know that Paul is upset until they get to verse 6, at which point it's really clear. Uh, I'm ast- astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ." That comment, keep that in your head, because when we get with our fight with Peter, that's going to be crucial why that is being thrown in. Okay? And so the problem in Galatia is uh, essentially they've made some theological changes have happened. Some people have come in and they've taught them different things than what Paul taught. I, I think some of this letter makes more sense if you also say that they came in and said not only taught different than Paul had taught but also said that Paul agrees with us All right, and so they were lying in that respect it's not entirely certain but I think that's the case but still regardless they came in and taught something different than what Paul originally taught and he says no that's not just a slight change that is a different gospel now to verse 11 at this point he's going to shift into his essentially his credentials Right? Because he's trying to make a theological argument. And to make a theological argument, one of the things you need to do is well, talk about your credentials. Why should they even listen to him? For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Right? So in other words, I received it directly from Jesus. Right? For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. All right, and this is exactly some of the material right, that Bill has been going through in Acts. All right, this is what he's talking about. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me on the road to Damascus, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. So in the Acts account, he goes, right? What's his destination? When he's leaving Jerusalem, where is he going? Damascus, right? So he goes to Damascus. We know from the Acts account that he meets with um, meets with Ananias there. Ananias prays for him. He regains his sight. All right. What we see here, though, is he left Damascus and went into Arabia. All right. And there were some. There were basically he went out and he probably received revelations at that point, but then went back to Damascus. The point, though, is he did not go back to Jerusalem. That's the key part of this. He did not go back to Jerusalem. Then, after three years, all right, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days, Cephas being Peter. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Now, why would he have that parenthetical there, all right, unless he, didn't, he wasn't sure that they'd believe him? All right? he's, he's saying very emphatically, this is the case. Or somebody, were people saying bad things about Paul or messing up his story? That's my assumption. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown to, to, in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, 
He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Right? So he has met with Peter and he has met with James. Um, but in general, he is not well acquainted with the church in Judea. He actually leaves and goes up to Asia Minor in that general area. And he worships and serves there. Okay. Chapter 2. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. So we haven't, we haven't gotten here yet in Acts. So that this is recorded there. I went up because of Revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles. So in other words, he's, he doesn't go to all the churches in Judea and starts preaching. He meets with the influential ones. He meets with the apostles and James and such. Right? So not a broad audience. He goes right, to the, the leadership, essentially, um, in, order that I make, in order to make sure I was not running or had, um, hadn't, had run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. So we see what the topic of this essentially was. It was talking about what do we do with these Greek believers? All right? Now, Titus was not forced to be circumcised. Why, is it, why, why do we care? Because circumcision in the law is major subject of matter of this letter. All right? That's why that's important. Verse 4, Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they, may, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, once again, apostles, James, types, parenthetical, what they, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. So in other words, his gospel presentation was unchanged. Independently received from Jesus, but unchanged by the apostles. All right, they're like, agreed. Okay. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to, to be pillars perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles, and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Okay. So, he's talking about, essentially at this point, I received my gospel independently from the apostles. However, I'm totally in sync with them. Alright? I'm preaching, working for a long time, go 14 years later, or I guess really it would be 17 years later, after his initial conversion, I meet with them and they're like, we are all in agreement. All right? And not just agreement. This is great. You go to the Gentiles, we'll work with the Jews. Very amicable. Everything is good. Until the next paragraph. So verse 11. All right, so he's with, Paul is not working in Judea. Paul is working outside. Paul is in Antioch. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. Is it okay for a Jew to eat with Gentiles? Right? right? For an Orthodox Jew, eating with a Gentile is going to be a problem. Right? Because there are going to be all sorts of unclean things there, and they're unclean. This, this is generally going to be a problem. However, before certain men showed up, Peter, right, and this is, this is one of the major subjects of the, the epistle, Cephas here was, was hanging out with the Gentiles. It was fine. Everything was fine. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Okay, so something happened there, all right? For, we haven't discussed this so much. I mean, well, 
it's not been made emphatic that Jews can, can eat with Gentiles. All right? It's very much implied by earlier discussions. Right? Titus was not required to be circumcised. He would have been by the law, so therefore there's a loosening. There's a change in the relationship between believing Gentiles and believing Jews already established at this point. When you've got, in this particular case, when you've got Peter eating with Gentiles, all right, Gentile believers, it's okay. Except then, there's some peer pressure. And not only Cephas, but also the others there, the other Jewish Christians, because of pressure, all right, back away and start separating themselves like they used to have done before Christ from the Gentiles. All right? In verse, verse 13 again, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with them, so that even Barnabas, all right, Barnabas, who should know better because he was in the previous discussions, was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? Well, what that means is, right, that, that, that response to Peter means essentially these Jewish Christians, all right, who had come to Antioch were basically saying, you need to separate and then they need to become circumcised and law-abiding Gentiles, and then you can hang out with them, all right? That, must, that, was, that was essentially the problem in Galatia. All right? But this was before that. This was in Antioch. So the same thing happened. And, and Paul is like, no. All right? If you, though a Jew, back to uh, verse 14, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew. In other words, he was. He was living like a Gentile. He was eating with Gentiles. He was hanging out with Gentiles. All right? he, if you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, all right? Now, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? This incident right here should be used as an anchor point for the next paragraph. There's a number of things that are, that are hard to understand in the next paragraph. All right? And the next paragraph goes directly out of this and helps us, I think, a great deal. Okay. So, let's go in this. And then in chapter 3, we will finally get to Genesis. We ourselves... Verse 15, are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Okay. Who's the we? All right. It's a big question right here in verse 15. Who's the we? Is it Gentile believers generally, or is it Paul and Peter? All right. There's some ambiguity here, and I think it's actually probably on purpose. Because what Paul is essentially doing here is he is going from a, um, a concrete situation, the situation in Antioch, and just sort of bleeding into his theological argument. All right. Because in this case, whether you read it as him talking to Peter and maybe Barnabas and those there, or him just talking generally, it, both are true, all right? Both are definitely true. And so there's this, like, we being Jews, all right? And so now he just kind of launches into theology, and he just sort of very smoothly transitions into the subject matter of what's going on specifically in Galatia, all right? So we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. It's the next verses that are a little confusing. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For I, if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. All right. What, would, what does it mean all right, to be found sinners being justified in Christ 
And what does it mean for Christ to be a servant of sin? And what would it mean in verse 18, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Okay? Let's think about the Peter situation. All right? Think about Peter's situation. Why was Peter justified? In what way was he justified? By believing in Jesus. By believing in Jesus. All right? And that, that's going to be the theological point in chapter 3. All right? Justification is always and has, has always been by faith. All right? That's the, that's the Abraham argument. But he hasn't made the argument yet. All right? So Peter was justified in Christ. And so in verse 17, But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Alright, what's a sinner in this context? Right. You've got Jews, okay? Alright? They have the law. Alright, you can say with, or you can say under. Okay? And then you have Gentiles, all right? And you could also put on, in this category, based on the Gospels, um, Jews who were technically under the covenant, but, but not believing. Or you could say, instead, um, they didn't follow the covenant. Like, for example, Jesus was often critiqued for hanging around with tax collectors and sinners, all right? That doesn't mean he was hanging around with Gentiles all the time. Um, he did spend some time with Gentiles, but he spent a lot of time with rebellious Jews as well. All right? Okay, and when we talk about the law here, this is specifically the Mosaic Law, to be clear. Okay, so these people, this is the category, all right, of sinners. Okay, in this terminology. Those who are not under the law. In the, in the Antioch incident, where is Peter? Which category is he in? Here's the thing. He's here. Why? Because he's not following the law. He's hanging out with Gentiles. In other words, Peter is a sinner. Don't think of it in terms of Peter is committing transgression against God. Think of it in terms of the Categories. Here's the hypothetical Paul is trying to argue. All right. Peter lumps himself in Antioch with this group of Gentiles. All right. And so therefore he is now not functioning under the law. But is Peter righteous? Yes, Peter is actually righteous. And here's the thing, right? Theologically, this would have been the the, the belief, right? This is the righteous category, this is the unrighteous category. All right? What they learn when Jesus comes very clearly, all right, is though you can still be in the sinner category, you can still be righteous, all right, by faith. So Peter is acting like a trans, acting like a sinner, though not being one, all right, not a transgressor of of God's moral will. He's hanging out with the sinners, yet is righteous by faith. What does he do then? All right? He then gives in to peer pressure, all right? and then starts implying that the Gentiles need to follow the law. What's he doing at that point? He's jumping back over the fence. And in the words of, of Paul here, he's rebuilding what he already tore down. Okay? By Peter going here and saying, Gentiles, you must go here too, he is rebuilding what has been torn down. He is, re- he is basically tearing, he has already torn down the requirement to be under the law to be righteous. By reimposing it, he's now tearing that down and rebuilding something else entirely. Okay? So that's, that's what Peter had done. He's the wall of partition. Yeah, yeah, in, in Ephesians lingo, he's rebuilding that wall of partition. And so you've got that concrete instance, this Antioch incident here. So when Paul, here in verse 15, all right, establishes, okay, we ourselves are Jews by birth, this category. 
and not Gentile sinners, that category. Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, so that, also, uh, so that we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. All right? Stated, not argued. That's later. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, over here, all right, is Christ then a servant of sin? Is Christ, all right, if, if Peter can be over here, if Peter can be over here, and if Paul can be over here, then Jesus can be over here. So that's the question. Is now Jesus a servant of sin? Is he a minister of sin? Is he trying to create sin? No, right? Certainly not, is his argument. And you and this, reaching to the end of the epistle, you've got two places at least, two only that I know of, where Paul basically, once again, argues for how do you fulfill the law? He's two different places. He says, just like Jesus had said in the Gospels, all right? Love God, love your neighbor. Twice he says at the end of the epistle, all right? Loving your neighbor fulfills the law. Carry one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ, all right? And so he's going to deny that this makes Jesus a proponent of sin, because it doesn't, because the law still will get fulfilled. At least the righteous requirement of the law will still be fulfilled. Once again, argument comes later. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. And this is the thing, right? If you jump from this category to this category and then change your mind, you prove yourself to be a transgressor, right? Because you messed up. Because you changed your mind. And now you told them one thing and now you're telling them something else. You prove yourself to be a transgressor. And that's Paul's point in Galatia, saying, I haven't changed. You changed. Right? You added. You added circumcision in the law. Alright? I didn't change. My gospel never changed. And if anyone ever tells you another gospel, they're anathema. Alright? So that's what those verses mean. And it fits in perfectly with the Antioch incident. That's why it's there. Alright? Paul's basically saying, I'm doing what Peter did not do. All right? I'm holding to this. Poor Peter, but all right? it's, it's a good illustration for what he's trying to do here. And then verse 19, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. And living to God is going to be a major topic in the next verses, in the next chapters. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Once again, a theological point. If, um, and this will come up again, right? because everything mentioned here is re-argued. Right? If righteousness could come through the law, he'll say this later, if righteousness could come through the law, Jesus would not have come. But righteousness can't come through the law, so therefore Jesus came. All right? That's going to be his argument later. But he makes the point now. So now let's actually start the argument. Chapter 3. All right? At this point, he's been making theological statements. He's set himself up against Peter. All right? he's, he showed in chapter 1 his astonishment with the Galatians. Um, once again, he will now make his feelings very clear about the Galatians and what they're doing. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law, this side, right, or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, in other words, they didn't didn't get the Spirit by the, um, the hearing of the law, but just by faith. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, you are now being perfected by the flesh? 
did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God, it was counted to him as righteousness. So his first argument is experiential. All right, all right Galatians. Let's, let's just talk about our history. I came to you. You received, you received the Spirit. Why? Because you started obeying the law? Or because you believed in faith? Well, they received the Spirit because they believed in faith. All right? So now he's going to go, okay, then why, are you, why do you think you need to be perfected by a law? This is the same exact theological happenstance and argument. All right? That happens in Acts, just a little bit further beyond where Bill is right now. If you would turn to Acts chapter 10. I want you to see that this is the exact same situation. That, once again, we're back to Peter, except this time uh, Peter did not make a mistake. All right? Acts chapter 10 and 11. We won't read the whole thing due to time. Uh, the basic story is this. There is, a there is a certain Cornelius. He is a Gentile. All right? uh, but he, is, he, be he believes. All right? he, he, he wants to hear more about Jesus, essentially. And so he sends a messenger to get Peter. Okay? Now Peter is praying and receives a vision. And it's the vision with a sheet of unclean animals. And God says, eat. And Peter says, nope. Those are unclean. And God says, if I make them clean... They're not unclean anymore. All right? Then he, same vision again. All right? And then the messenger shows up to get Peter. All right? And so he's trying to, God is teaching Peter, if I make something clean, all right, then you can't treat it like it's unclean. And so uh, let's go to verse 34. So all, that, all of that is the beginning of chapter 10. And when we get to verse 34, um, Peter's there at Cornelius' house. He is with a Gentile at this point, all right? Um, and the paragraph before, uh, Cornelius had, had talked about how uh, he essentially had received like a vision to, to, call Paul, to call Peter. So verse 34, so Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. What, what does that mean? Well, this is Jew-Gentile thing, right? God had decided to pick out some Gentiles here. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what, he, what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him up on the third day and made, it, made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead." And he commanded us to preach to the people and testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins through his name. Okay? He preaches the gospel to them. All right? And now a, a, a corollary is going to happen to what happened in Galatia. All right? While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. Note there has been no law talk. There has been no you must be circumcised. There's none of that stuff. The Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed. Right? They, were, they were surprised. They didn't expect this. Because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter declared... Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. All right? 
Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God. All right. Ooh, we got to find out about this. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. And then Peter tells the story. Go to verse 15. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. From a Jewish theology perspective, all right, who is the Spirit supposed to come on? All right, it's very prominent in, in Ezekiel, especially. All right, who's the Spirit supposed to come on? It's supposed to come on Jewish believers. All right, it's supposed to come on the people of God. Or in Joel, all right, the Spirit's going to come upon the people. All right, and then the Spirit comes upon some Gentiles. So, what, do, what does this mean? What well, means they become the people of God, right? They became the people of God without getting circumcised. They became the people of God without following the law. This is exactly what happened in, in Galatia. This is exactly Paul's argument. You became the people of God by hearing with faith. And how do we know you became the people of God? You received the Spirit. That's how you know. Now, if you would turn back to Galatians. So his first argument is experiential. All right? It's, how did you receive the Spirit? By faith. You received the Spirit by faith. All right? In verse 6, all right? In verse 6, he's now going to transition into a scriptural argument. Just as Abraham, and this is quoting then from Genesis, believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Okay? And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, once again, quoting from Genesis, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And so, yeah, we're back in Galatians, yeah. All right, and so, um, this is, you know, this is one of the things that is in terms of progressive revelation. All right, from the Old Testament, from Genesis, it's very clear. All right, that the Gentiles are going to be believers in, believers in the God of Abraham. All right, that's gonna that's clear from Genesis. What's unclear is how that's going to happen. That's not, that's not clear at all. What's also unclear is that that they are going to be of the same exact family. That doesn't even seem to be the point in Genesis. All right? Through you, all the nations will be blessed. But that's, that's it's left ambiguous. All right? And then when you get to Ezekiel, it's like, okay, the people of God will receive the Spirit of God all right, at the day of the Lord. Okay, now the people of God are receiving the Spirit of God, and they're like, fantastic. This is what the prophets had expected. And then the Gentiles receive the Spirit of God, and they're like, we didn't expect this. But... Okay, now we're going to just basically reread Ezekiel again and go, wait a minute, okay. All right. So this is also talking about Gentiles. All right. And so here's Paul. Now, updated theology, right? Updated from 20 years before. All right. His, Paul's theology is different. He's no longer a law exclusivist where this is the only place for righteous people. All right. He's like, no, no, no. Now when I read Genesis, I understand Genesis. Is what he's saying. I understand Genesis now better than I used to. And that is, everyone who is of faith is a child of Abraham without the law. Unnecessary. Now let's make that argument. We have a few more minutes. Verse 10 in chapter 3. For all who rely on the works of the law... Oh, actually, that's too far. Verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith 
are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Now at this point, we're going to pull from a few things other than Genesis. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to do them. This is from Deuteronomy, all right, around that section of blessings and cursings. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for, quoting from Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather, the one who does them shall live by them. That's Leviticus. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. I think that's Deuteronomy. Is that right? Check your cross-references. So then in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. All right? And this verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, by essentially being hung on a tree. And so, you know, if a regular Jew gets hung on a tree and he stays overnight, if you go back and read the context, uh, that's, they're cursed, right? That's not supposed to happen. Uh, did Jesus remain on a tree overnight? Okay. Uh, Jesus was cursed by God. Yet... Being righteous, all right? Now he was, Jesus was hanging on a tree, cursed by God, yet being righteous. So therefore, he took the curse of the law, all right? And that's Paul's theology. He took the curse of the law for everyone else by fulfilling that verse, all right? Now, normally, uh, you'd only put a, hang a criminal on a cross or something. That's what the Romans would do. And of course, in the Old Testament, there were no crosses. That was a Roman thing. But still, hanging people on a tree gets them cursed. Christ became that curse for his people. All right? So that the law essentially could be set aside. And that's essentially going to be his argument. Okay? So that right there, all right? Going back to Abraham, all right? By basically saying, Abraham believed God and was counted him as righteous. Therefore, Gentile believers in Galatia, all right, it's okay. You believed in God, therefore you were justified. Just like Abraham, all right? Exactly the same way. That's a scriptural argument. Okay, so that was a lot. Questions or thoughts about that? Yes, Bill. I don't know how relevant it is, but the Samaritans, are mm -hmm. they under Jew category or Gentile category? They would, I think, have more counted them as apostate category. So, Samaritans, the general, the general bias against the Samaritans was probably multifold, right? One, um, they were worse. Well, they they got wiped out first in the Old Testament, right, for Judah, because of their sin. All right, that was problem number one. Problem number two, there was a general belief that they were inbred with Gentiles. All right, and so when they were taken off into exile, all right, when they went off into exile, and for those who had stayed in the land, because exile, generally speaking, did not mean you entirely empty it of its inhabitants. That's not how exile worked. All right, you don't want to leave in a place entirely empty, like zero humans in, in Judea and Samaria. That was not how the Assyrians and the Babylonians did it. They would take the influential, they would take the rich, they would take the powerful, and so those who were left would be essentially powerless and leaderless, and they could control them. All right? But the general belief would be okay that they are not pure anymore. They are not pure sons of Abraham. They have crossbred with the Gentiles. And so, therefore, there would be bias against them for that. And then, third, you're going to have a problem because, remember, the discussion between Jesus and the woman of Samaria, all right? They're still hanging on to we don't have to go to Jerusalem to worship God, right? That's their argument, right? And from the Old Testament perspective, okay, they were wrong, right? God wanted the temple built in Jerusalem, Mount Zion, and they were to come to Jerusalem to worship. And that was a way in which the northern kingdom was rebellious. So they set up altars in various places in the northern kingdom, right? And politically, all right, um, this kind of makes sense because you're like, well, if we're a different kingdom than the southern kingdom and all of our people are going to worship in the southern kingdom, that's bad. And so they instead resort to idolatry and 
right? Worship God in the place where they're not supposed to worship God. And so, even in Jesus' time, hundreds of years later, all right, specifically eight or nine hundred years later, they're still holding on to those ideas, right? Well, we think we're supposed to worship up here. The Jews say we're supposed to worship down there. Where, do we, where should we worship? All right? Days are coming, all right? which I think implies that uh, you should be worshiping down in Jerusalem. But days are coming when you don't have to worship in Jerusalem. What matters is you worship in spirit and truth. All right? And, well, I mean, that's, very, that's what's going on here in Galatia, right? Paul is not saying, be Jews and go down to Jerusalem and that's how you do all your stuff. He's like, no, you receive the spirit exactly where you are. You're real children of Abraham. So, yeah. I was just thinking about, you know, Philip's ministry in Samaria, mm-hmm. and then a lot of people believe some apostles come down from Jerusalem to check it out, or go yeah. there to check it out. They're like, they did receive the Spirit. And so I'm just wondering why Peter's so surprised once we get to this Cornelius event, unless they sort of saw the Samaritans as not really Gentiles, but kind of Jews. But. Yeah, straying, straying brethren. Yeah. yeah. I, th- I think that's probably it, right? Where God is gradually moving the, the apostles out of their own biases, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which, is, which is interesting to see that, that God didn't just say at the very beginning, okay, right now, this is how this is going to work. Gentiles are full members of the covenant if they believe. It's not how it happened. All right, God revealed it through them through experiences they had. All right, it's the Samaritan example first of okay. Apparently, the Samaritans can really be believers. All right, and then it's the Gentile example. Okay, apparently they can be believers too, not through you know vocal revelation. All right, not through that. You could read Genesis and see it if you know to look for it there. But this is Paul after he's now seen, at this point, thousands of Gentiles receive the, the Spirit, right? Because by the time he went to Galatia, he had been, right, he'd been ministering for decades, essentially. And so, just God gradually, it's like even the vision, right, that he gave to, to Peter, it's not, it's not super explicit. It's, like, it's not a didactic vision of, Peter, Gentiles, can become full members of the community through faith. That's not what God says to him. He gives him a vision, a picture. All right? And then Peter puts it together. Right? When he goes to hang out with Cornelius. Interesting, I think. Yeah. It's kind of interesting, too, the the conversion of Saul and how he has this, this... overwhelming mind change and then and then he makes a big point about how I didn't get the gospel from y'all yeah. being the, the disciples actually walked physically with Jesus God gave it directly and then a long time later I come down there and then y'all validate it and then here it, it's amazing that the Authority in the early church, he confronts Peter. Yeah. That is, to me, that's, that's pretty huge because of who Peter is. And yet he, he doesn't back down. And Peter backs way down. To Peter, it's almost like a Damascus Road. You're right. Yeah. Peter gets corrected and changes. Yeah. Praise God. Yeah. It's not just Peter. You're right. It's it not. seems to be all of them. Barnabas, too, and others. Think of, but think of, right, if, if you're primarily based in Judea, all right, and you're Christians, who are you mostly hanging around, out with? You're mostly hanging out with Jews, right? The, that, and, and you grew up a Jew, all right? All these people grew up Jews, and they, they're used to a certain way of doing things, and they're around people who are who are doing things a certain way. And the early Christians, right, the Jews, they didn't say, right, okay, we're Christians now, we're going to stop reading the Old Testament and doing things like that. That's not what they did, right? The early Christians, as far as we can tell, continued to, to follow the law, the, the Jewish Christians did, all right? They're like, well, we'll still, I'm still going to avoid pork, generally speaking. Now, when 
Peter goes to Antioch. No. All right. He goes and hangs out with the Gentiles. He'll eat their food. It's not a problem. And we see this also when, when Paul goes back to Jerusalem in Acts. This is true. Like right before he's arrested, right? What does Paul do? He takes a vow and goes to the temple. He does very Jewish things. He's not going around acting like a Gentile. He goes to, Jew, uh, he goes to Jerusalem and he acts like a Jew. And that's fine. All right? That's totally fine. The problem is if you go to Gentiles and say... For you to be a real, a real Christian, you have to become a Jew. No, you don't have to do that. Christ came to change that. All right? And if you do that, you show and you say, essentially, Christ didn't need to come at all. That's the theological point of, of Galatians. Um, but I think right, that the, the law continued to be followed by lots of Jews. I think that's the, that seems to be how the New Testament portrays it. And so when they come to Antioch, all of that culture and history come with them, and Peter, Peter fails, as does Barnabas and others. But not Paul, who used to be more zealous than all of them in terms of the law. It's interesting. That's one of the things about the New Testament and the Bible in general. It doesn't, it doesn't whitewash our heroes, right? Peter was a sinner. As was Paul. As was David. As was Moses, right? What greater prophet is there in the Old Testament than Moses? And Moses didn't get to go into the promised land because of what he did, right? All these people are sinners. As are we. Okay. Um, we should be we should be done about now. Just think about this, right? You are, all right? It's one reason why I'm doing this, this, this study, all right? When you become a Christian, you join a family, all right? You join a family that is thousands of years old, okay? Because God made a promise with Abraham and said, okay, Abraham, starting something new with you, all right? You're going to be the father of a nation, all right? And so, when you become a Christian, you are involved in something, all right, that God established ish 4,000 years ago, all right, give or take a few hundred years, all right? You've been, you are joining something that old, all right, all the way back to then. That's tremendous, all right? That's way older than your physical family, all right? How, how, how far back can you trace your, your family tree? All right. Probably not very far. Well, from a faith perspective, even though we, we may not know a lot of the links between us and Abraham, we ultimately have to trace it back to Abraham. All right. And so you are, you are a, a part of the biggest family the world has ever known when you believe in Christ. All right. Gentile or Jew, doesn't matter. When you believe in Christ, you become a part of that family. So think about that, and thank God for that. Alright? Thank God for that, because you are a part of something. You're not just adrift in the world. You've got, you were, you were bought with a price. Alright? You belong to something. So think about that today, as you sing and as you pray, and as you listen, and as we all worship. Okay? Chip, will you pray for us, please?